Well, good morning and thank you. It is really a privilege to be here. You all just have to promise to keep it a secret that I have another husband when I'm in New Orleans. <laughs> um, today, I am going to be talking about a topic that I really had not worked on prior to this invitation. So I am particularly grateful to the historic New Orleans Foundation for the opportunity to expand my horizons. Now you'll forgive me, I hope, this is the only cartoon, well, almost the only cartoon I'm going to be showing you today, but I thought it was important to stress that of course, especially in the colonial period, America looks to England, England looks to France, and France looks to the ancient worlds of Italy and Greece. And I hope you can identify by their headgear uh, who is whom, and also by their stature. The, uh, oh, of course, and the Greeks and the Romans looked to the gods. That goes without saying. Now, there are actually four components to my presentation this morning. I am first going to briefly explore the Huguenot diaspora as expressed by silver owned in America. Um, and, of course, that relates to the exodus of French Protestants after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. I will then take a brief but broader look at French silver in colonial America and its influence most particularly on American-made products. Then we'll move on to silver brought back to America from France after the War of Independence, um, typically by those individuals who either lived in or visited France while traveling. And finally, in conclusion, I'll be looking at the increase in American silver production and the protection of our domestic market, as well as the interna internationalization of design in the 19th century. We have written evidence for French silver in the American colonies from the earliest periods, such as the advertisement that appeared in the Boston newsletter of October 1706, announcing that a plain silver-hilted sword without a guard fashionable with a Paris mark had been stolen from the house of Mr. William Bright of Newport on Rhode Island, who was an innkeeper. But unfortunately, few such objects survive with their associated histories except for a handful of French silver vessels that were used in early American churches. Now, Tom has already shown you briefly an image in black and white of this um, small gilded silver beaker um, that is in the lower left and seen with a group of more typical objects in the upper, I'm sorry, the lower right and seen in the upper left with a group of more typical church silver. I'm very grateful for Brandy Culp of Historic Charleston for aiding me in um, the uh, search for these objects and the acquisition of images. Um, it was Lewis Nelson most recently who, um, in his volume, in, Beauty in, this, in the Beauty of Holiness, Anglicanism and Architecture in Colonial South Carolina, that has most recently written about these items. Now, what's interesting to me is that the vestry minutes of St. John's Parish in Berkeley, or St. John's Church in Berkeley, South Carolina, recorded in 1742 the gift of, quote, a silver gilt cup with a case belonging to it. Now, that cup 
the church goes on to record, was brought to this country by the Reverend Dr. LaSalle, former minister of the French church in that colony of South Carolina, and that it was used in religious services as a reminder of the plight of those who had had to flee their country. It's a distinctively French form, not one that you would find typically among Anglican church wares, and that they are indeed represented by the um, group of more ordinary, if you will, English or Anglican church silver that you see in the slide on the upper left. Um, the very tall chalice, the uh, patent, the flagon, and the basin. Um, those were part of the silver vessels, were part of uh, strawberry, um, uh, strawberry Chapel, which was a chapel of ease or a church of convenience adjacent um, within the same region as Berkeley, but far enough situated so that it would be used only once a month when the minister would be required to travel to a more distant church in order to have a communion service for families who could not travel all the way to St. John's. The French speaker, along with the um, Strawberry Chapel communion silver, um, are the materials that were buried that Tom mentioned and only found in the 20th century. Um, now, moving from that to another similar form, but a group of objects that, although not in church use, certainly record the um, presence of a very strong Huguenot sentiment here in colonial America and uh, the spirit of anti-Jacobitism. I want to look briefly at these three objects that you see on the screen, and I will consider them an individual um, images in just a moment. They all relate, however, in their imagery to anti-Jacobitism, and each was engraved by Joseph Liddell of New York in 1750 and is inscribed as such. Liddell was of Huguenot de descent and was both a wealthy and a literate pewterer and engraver of considerable talent. The tankard and the can or mug um, both bear a variant of the armorial crest used by the related family Liddell of Scotland, and all three of these silver pieces were personally owned by Joseph Liddell. So let's take a quick look at the imagery and discuss them as they relate to our larger theme of the French presence. Here we have a tankard made by William Vieland of Philadelphia about 1725, now owned by historic Deerfield, and it's engraved very densely with three panels of mythological scenes, each of which is capped by a portrait head, to create what is ultimately a tale of contrasting political infidelity and political loyalty. The central character on the um, tankard is Simon Fraser, or Lord Lovett, who betrayed his allegiance to the British crown and supported the young pretender to the British throne during the attempt to take Scotland that culminated in the 1746 battle at Culloden. Lovett was ultimately discovered as being a traitor to the British crown. He was tried for treason and beheaded in London in 1747. So I think it's sort of a celebration of someone gone wrong who got caught and done bad. This can, which was made by Bartholomew LaRue II, is of New York, um, about 1745-1750, is now at the Yale University Art Gallery. And it's densely engraved also with scenes from the Old Testament story of Joseph and his trials while in captivity. Viewed within the context of the Huguenot dispersal from their homeland, 
it serves as an allegory of adherence to religious and patriotic convictions while in exile from your natal land. And I think most germane and, and perhaps most interesting to our particular emphasis in this seminar is this beaker made by Hugh Lossois of saint Mello, France, in 1707-1708. It is now owned by the Museum of the City of New York. There is a similarly engraved beaker made by Daniel Christian Feuder of New York, um, exact same engraving, undoubtedly done by Joseph Liddell, that is also in the collections at the Winniter Museum. But now, first off, recognize the form of this beaker, okay? It's very similar in many respects to the um, contemporaneous or only slightly earlier um, French gilded beaker. Um, this is the oldest of the triumvirate of these pieces. Um, and it is engraved on the bottom, as you can see in the upper corner there, Joseph Liddell sculpt or engraved 1750. And it also bears French hallmarks in the center of that base. And we'll discuss French hallmarks a little bit later in uh, this morning's presentation. A verse is engraved all the way around the rim of the beaker. And I'm going to read you the entire verse and then we'll look at the three panels individually. The verse is, three mortal enemies remember, the devil, pope, and the pretender. Most wicked, damnable, and evil, the pope, pretender, and the devil. I wish they were all hanged in a rope, the pretender, devil, and the pope. Now, I, I, I do apologize if um, I am uh, offending anyone. I, I must tell you that I am... Um, of Roman Catholic upbringing, a fact which I very carefully did not disclose to the French Huguenot Society of New York when I was doing research um, back in the 1990s with uh, my dear friend um, from Christie's, Jean Sloan. We wrote an article together on these three pieces that was published in um, 1992, I think it was, in the magazine Antiques. So I, I'm, I'm non-partisan in the discussion that's about to follow. Now, in this particular scene, what we see is the devil. Um, he is carrying a whip, and he is entwined with a serpent that also forms his tail. Um, and he's pulling a chain through a gate that is marked death. Okay. This next panel depicts the pope, who is attached to the devil's chain by a ring through his nose. And he, in turn, is pulling a rope under a gallows marked danger. Now, the Pope, of course, is easily recognizable by his clerical robes, his mitre hat, and the cross that he carries in his right hand. And finally, in this last panel, we see it is Charles, the young pretender to the British throne, dressed in tartan and being led toward the gallows and the gate of danger by a rope tied around his neck. To the right is the final destination of this whole procession of the devil, pope, and pretender, which is the gaping maw of hell, belching flames and snorting smoke. And in case you're not sure what it is, the flames actually have the word hell written into them. <laughs> now, Liddell did not invent this poem or this imagery. Both of the, the poem and the imagery were published in British and American newspapers in uh, woodcuts, and actually mock processions of the devil, pope, and pretender were staged repeatedly in London and in New York. But I think taken as a whole, there are no more compelling objects of anti-Jacobitism and anti-Catholic sentiment, and of course, by contrast, pro-Huguenot and pro-Protestantism in the American decorative arts than these three objects. They are really quite a fascinating expression 
of um, the Huguenot diaspora. Now we're going to move on at this point to the influence of French silver in America. And remember, it is uh, very much filtered in most instances through the lens of Britain. So what we see here on the screen are three vessels known as equelles. They are a quintessentially French form and are comprised of a two-handled bowl, most often with a cover. And when they don't have a cover, the assumption is generally that the cover, in fact, has been lost. Now, on the upper um, part of the screen, you see on the left um, an example made by Claude Picatier in Dijon in 1677, and on the right, an equelle with its cover and with solid rather than pierced handles made by Pierre Jarin of Paris in 1712. Uh, both of those are in the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, which has the largest and finest collection of French silver anywhere in America, the Firestone Collection, well worth a visit. Now, in the bottom, uh, we also have another piece from the Boston Museum, which is a, um, an equelle made by Thomas Farron of London, England, um, clearly a copy of the French form, um, and it was produced between 1729 and 1730. Now, the equelles were made in England for a brief time, especially by French Huguenot silversmiths, such as Thomas Farron, um, whose example seen here bears the classic um, Huguenot characteristics of, for instance, cut card decoration on its lid. Um, so it, it basically says, hello, I am of French descent in the design of the form and indeed in um, the decoration on its lid. Now we know at, at, le at least one occasion um, Equels were apparently imported into America. Thanks to my dear colleague Angelica Kuttner, um, I had the opportunity to um, uh, read a, a newspaper advertisement from New York in the 1750s in which a vast quantity of goods were being imported for sale in New York. And among that list, mixed in with pewter, brass, and copper items, um, there is a, a description of large French soup dishes with lids and handles. Equels, probably made of pewter in that particular instance. Now, how does this relate to American silver? Well, what do you think is the ancestor of our porringer? It only, our porringers typically only have one handle. They very rarely have lids, but goodness, they are certainly the direct descendants of the French Equel form. And what I show you here on the screen now are two porringers in the collection of Colonial Williamsburg. The example on the left, made by Paul Revere Sr., or Paul Revere I, and the example on the right, made by Paul Revere um, the second or the Patriot silversmith. And they date respectively to 1730 to 54 and about 1785 to 90. Um, it's important to remember that Paul Revere Sr. was born Apollos Revois and that he anglicized his name to uh, Paul Revere when he came to the American colonies. He was born of French Huguenot dis uh, parentage um, in the Channel Islands and was sent to America to offer a greater opportunity to him. And so the heritage of Paul Revere the Patriot is very definitely coming from that French background. The Porringer form was tremendously popular in America far, far more popular than um, the equivalent form in Britain. 
And um, here you see a little dancing merry-go-round of five porringers, all made by Boston silversmiths between 1730 and 1785. They are part of the Hennage Collection in Williamsburg. And starting at about 7 o'clock, we have Paul Revere, Jesse Churchill, Daniel Henchman, Jacob Hurd, and Benjamin Burke. Uh, clearly, they were all working from the same pattern. This handle design is known as the keyhole pattern, um, and it is by far the most popular of the American porringer handle designs, although I must stress that especially in the 17th century, there is considerably more variation, and you actually find an interesting variant also being produced in New York on the eve of the Revolution. But this form continues basically from, from almost first settlement all the way through the 18th century. Moving along to something else made by Paul Revere, I show you here on the left um, a standing cup that is of French origin, um, made in Paris by Adrien Davaux in 1692, and on the right, our Paul Revere example, um, made in Boston in 1758. Now these are both pieces of church or ecclesiastical silver owned by the Old South Church of Boston, and they are on deposit at the Museum of Fine Arts. Um, the French cup on the left is engraved the gift of Mr. Anthony Brackett to the South Church in Boston, 1758. Why and how Anthony Brackett came to own a, a late 17th century French standing cup is unknown, but it is clear that he thought it important and worthy and appropriate enough to make a gift of it to the church while he was still living. It was not a deathbed bequest. Um, he did not die until 1764, I believe. But he made a gift of this to the church. And, and the practice of gifting silver to the church either during your lifetime or on your deathbed was considered very appropriate. I hate to suggest that it is in any way buying your um, eternal resting place. There's an element of that, but there's also the aspect of being a memorial or a testimony to your allegiance to the church. Now, interestingly, the example on the right, made by Paul Revere, the Patriot silversmith, is the earliest known datable object made by Paul Revere. And it is obviously a copy of the French cup, and there is a reason for that. Um, this cup by Revere is engraved, the gift of the Reverend Mr. Thomas Prince to the South Church in Boston, who was ordained pastor of that said church on October 1st, 1718, and died October 22nd, 1758, at the age of 72. Now, Thomas Prince made a deathbed bequest to the church in which he had served as minister for so long, and he stated that um, he wished to give to the Old South Church a piece of plate, that's the term that was used for solid silver in the 18th century, making it very confusing when silver plate or fused plate begins to be introduced. But he says, I give to the Old South Church a piece of plate of the size and form of that last given to said church, but to be plain and to hold a full pint. So he, <laughs> communion. Um, <laughs> so he he knew exactly how he wanted it to appear, and that he wanted it plain and ever so slightly larger. And Revere did an outstanding job of fulfilling this important bequest at a point that was still quite early in his career, when he had only recently taken over his late father's establishment. Um, 
And we know from Revere's shop records that actually he commissioned a uh, Boston wood turner, um, an ivory turner, to make a wooden pattern of the French example to use as his model in making the um, silver cup. So it's, it's really a fascinating and important bequest that is not terribly well known among collectors of the decorators. Now, I'm, I'm going to be mindful of my time, so I'm moving along rapidly here. Um, just another piece quickly to whet your uh, curiosity, I hope, about uh, some of the pre-revolutionary silver um, that shows a French heritage is this rather unusual coffee pot, again, made by Paul Revere II of Boston, about 1780. It is um, an anonymous long-term loan to the Boston Museum of Fine Art. And it is actually not a terribly well-known object. It's been published um, very infrequently and in, shall we say, slightly more minor publications. So there are an awful lot of people who are not aware of this. Uh, but I think it's safe to say, Three-legged coffee pots are exceedingly rare in early American silver. And they are, in fact, quite uncommon even in English production of the 18th century. But they are an exceptionally popular form in France throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. And so when you see a three-legged coffee vessel, you can almost guarantee it will be French. This example was made for the very wealthy and very important Darby family of Salem, Massachusetts. And while it may have copied an English prototype, its ultimate origin is decidedly France. Well, as Donna mentioned, of course, we were restricted in our ability to acquire goods in America during the colonial period. Um, legally, the, the uh, requirements were that all goods of foreign manufacture had to go through England, where they would be taxed, and they would be loaded onto British ships, where they would be sent to America, so England would get her due, not only in controlling what we would acquire, but in taxing it. And that, of course, is part of the kerfuffle that led up to the uh, War of Independence. This print <laughs> is entitled, um, Poor Old England Endeavoring to Reclaim His Wicked American Children, and therefore is England maimed and forced to go with a staff. Um, and then it has the name Shakespeare. It is a black and white line etching um, done by Matthew Darley in London, um, in September of 1777, and this piece is now owned in the Colonial Williamsburg collections. Um, and in the imagery, England, over on the right, is depicted by as a wizened old man with a wooden leg who is leaning on his crutch with the English shield at his feet, and he's thrown lines across the ocean. That that this sort of, um, now let's see if I can do this without exploding anything. This little, what looks like grassy area is actually meant to be the Atlantic. He's thrown these lines across um, in an attempt to reclaim the colonials. Now, the colonial men, who um, have mostly been hooked with fish hooks through their noses, um, are pulling back and struggling against um, this attempt to rein them in. Uh, they're making some rather obscene gestures in some instances, and of course one of them has turned and dropped his britches, which I think that just sums it up all brilliantly. And the legend on the print um, is, is, is basically a parody of a Shakespearean line, and therefore is England maimed and forced to go with a staff. England has been its own undoing. 
Well, that is certainly, I think, an accurate representation of American sentiment towards England, ironically enough, published in England um, at the time of the Revolution. And here we have the French interpretation of the American Revolution from one year later. Uh, this is a black and white line engraving with period color, executed in France in 1778. And if Tom thinks his French is bad, oh, let me tell you, I can put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, even in English. So I will not attempt to um, torture you with my uh, pronunciation. But this satire is uh, really a commentary on the Franco-American alliance. Um, there are little numbers scattered throughout that are all explained in um, the bottom of the print, not seen here, and there's also a short humorous poem. But in essence, what's going on is that France is represented in the guise of an avenging angel, seen right in the center of the imagery. Um, she's carrying a sword and a shield adorned with a Medusa head as she attacks the fleeing British troops who look pretty bedraggled. Um, one of the soldiers has raised his head in terror, others fall to the ground in fear, and their British flag has been torn to shreds, has been tattered by this avenging angel of France. And off to the right in the background, is a little group of colonial American citizens who are celebrating this French allegiance by dancing around a maypole um, that has now had a liberty cap added to the top and they're also holding an American flag. And far, far off in the upper right background is a representation of the city of Philadelphia. Before the British um, occupied the city, significant, significant Colonial activities there had been removed and much of the populace had fled and it was on June 18, 1778 that Americans were able to reoccupy the city when France had come to their aid and the British were forced to flee. And a white flag of surrender that appears on the wall of the city in this print is indicative of that. So I think this nicely sums up how we feel about the French and how we feel about the English. Well. Let's look at some objects that were brought back to America in the post-revolutionary period by mostly individuals who had been um, traveling or living in France. And here we have a covered sugar bowl and tray by Jean-Nicolas Boulanger, made in Paris in 1784. It is in the collections of the historic Charleston Foundation, um, where it is on loan from Mrs. Margaret Lowndes Land. And it was, um, it's an interesting form uh, as someone who has spent most of her professional career focusing on American and British made goods. I look at an image like this and I'm like, oh no, 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 that's not a sugar dish and cover. That's got to be a little soup, you know, or sauce terrain. It's, it's, it's a completely different form, but indeed it is meant to be a sugar bowl and cover. And it was most likely a present from Joseph Manigo of Charleston to his sister Anne Manigo that was purchased while Joseph was studying in Europe. It's engraved with the monogram um, of AM and it has a wonderful line of descent in the Manigo family. An interesting piece and I think I can safely say very French both in the form and its design and decoration. Now I, I 
Thomas Jefferson. He is the ultimate American Francophile, and he bought a tremendous amount of, um, of uh, household items while he was in, living in France, and certainly there was a good bit of silver among that. And while it's been published quite a bit, I thought it would be useful just to take a closer look at this, because he is so well known as being an advocate of France and French decorative arts. Here we have, so a little quick ramble through his silver, here we have um, several pieces of flatware from the two groups of table furniture that he purchased upon his arrival in Paris in 1784. Um, they are by two different makers, whose names I will not tell you, um, but they were all produced in 1784, and all in the same style, which is known as a fiddle thread pattern, very popular in France and in England at this point in time. Um, and they have later monograms that are added to them. Uh, Thomas Jefferson did not have these engraved. In fact, you'll notice that the two forks, which do have monograms, are engraved in very different styles. That was done by um, eager descendants who wished to commemorate and record their uh, affiliation with uh, TJ. And I, I just urge you, if you uh, personally, if you personally own any, you know, family heirlooms with important ancestry, write it down on a piece of paper. Don't have it engraved on a piece of silver. Um, and in fact, some of the grandchildren uh, wrote that they regretted having um, had the monograms added to the pieces because they realized that they perhaps were not as consistent and reflective of Jefferson's personal style as. You know, it could have been otherwise. So, we're looking at a very popular style flatware made in France, large and heavy. Talk more about that in a moment. Here is uh, one of four plates purchased by Jefferson. Um, they were made by Pierre-Jacques Lamine in Paris in 1786 and 1787. And they are in a decidedly conservative style. This particular type of reeded border, shaped border, is first introduced into France in the 1730s, and it does persist, but our dear friend Thomas Jefferson is not out there on cutting edge of design. He's going for something very conservative, something rather simple, rather plain, that will not be perceived as out of fashion um, because of its excesses or extremities. They were listed as quatre plat de jante um, in, in 1790 when uh, Thomas Jefferson's substantial quantities, I, I, Donna mentioned 80 or upwards cases of household goods were shipped back to America. And here we have two of four covered vegetable dishes made by Antoine Boulier in Paris, also in 1786-87. Now, covered vegetable dishes are a relatively new form in silver at this point in time, both in England and in France. And they are certainly not something that Jefferson would likely have been able to purchase from an American source. He did, however, do some comparison shopping. He was not profligate um, while he was in London, but he made the decision after his return from London to purchase them instead in Paris. And it was the acquisition of these four pieces was his largest single expenditure on silver. They cost him more than 1,300 leaves. What I really want to emphasize, however, is how simple they are in their decoration. They are really quite austere. Um, the ornamentation is limited only to the handles. And this, I must stress, is highly atypical for French silver of this period, but it does reflect Jefferson's personal taste. 
And I think we can see that again in this coffee urn made by Jacques-Louis Auguste Luguet um, and purchased through Odio's shop in Paris um, in 1787-1788. Um, on the right is a design for an urn drawn by Thomas Jefferson himself um, in Paris about 1789. Now, Thomas Jefferson purchased this coffee urn, originally intending it to be a gift for the architect Charles-Louis Clairceau uh, in recognition of his assistance um, in the design of the Virginia State Capitol um, while Jefferson was in Paris. He uh, sort of partnered with Clairceau on this. However, it, it appears that Jefferson had some fondness for this particular urn because he decided to keep it for himself. And ultimately, he tried to order another urn, and he did indeed order another urn for Clarisseau from Jean-Baptiste Claude Odiot. And um, the sketch of what that other urn looked like is the example done by Thomas Jefferson on the right. Sadly, that urn's... Um, present whereabouts, or indeed even if it is still in existence, completely unknown. We don't have a clue. But we do have these goblets um, made by Claude-Nicolas Delaunay in Paris in 1789, um, owned both by um, Dr. and Mrs. Caldwell and the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation, seen here on the upper left. And then two pages of designs um, for goblets, again, executed by Thomas Jefferson about 1789 and owned by the Mass Massachusetts Historical Society. Jefferson loved to sketch. I mean, he was at heart, I think, something of a draftsman and an architect, and so um, it is fascinating to me the extent to which he recorded his silver. And the big question is, was he directing the designs of these pieces, or was he essentially taking a Polaroid of the period? So the, and, and that's a question that I'm still not entirely convinced we've resolved entirely. Um, but again, what I'd like to stress is how plain, how austere and restrained these objects are for their time. Um, the, uh, yes, so uh, a lot of uncertainty, but he clearly treasured these and used them at his table throughout the remainder of his lifetime. Now, uh, finally, a little word about what is the form that I think in popular imagination today is most frequently associated with Thomas Jefferson, which is the Jefferson cup, that little tumbler. This is, once again, not a form you will find in England at this point in time. It's a very uh, elegant, simple, and practical form. The tumblers are made so that they are heavier and thicker in the base and thinner and lighter on the sides, so that when you put them down, even though they have that very attractive, slightly rounded bottom to them, they will balance nicely. They do not tip over. Um, and so, interestingly enough, the French example on the upper left is a piece of French silver plate, or fused silver plate, not solid silver, um, from about 1787. It is unmarked as to its origin, but we know he bought a cup for his cup for his personal use while in France at that time. And then on the lower right are two of the original eight tumblers that Jefferson commissioned from the Richmond, Virginia silversmith, John Letelier, um, as in, in 1810. Now, Thomas Jefferson sent his French fused plated tumbler to Letelier as a model, 
And he, again, sort of like the Revere Order, was very specific about it. He said he wanted a set of eight to be made that were slightly taller and heavier than their prototype, but to be gilded like the French tumbler. And this is one of the few instances where Jefferson actually requested that his silver be monogrammed. Um, he had been a student um, and a, a, a great admirer of a resident of Williamsburg named George Wythe, who was a teacher at the College of William and Mary. And when Wythe died, he left a request to Jefferson in his will of two silver cups, which, for reasons unknown, Jefferson decided to have melted down along with um, some silver he owned and turned into this eight, set of eight tumblers. He had four of the tumblers engraved GW to PJ. It's not George Washington. It is George with to Thomas Jefferson, GW to TJ. And the other four simply engraved TJ. So this is the one of the few examples where we can look at his own taste um, in monogramming. And clearly, he viewed at least half of this set as a sort of um, more usable uh, remembrance of his friend and mentor, George with. Interestingly enough, the family documents also record that these were used at the table at Monticello throughout his lifetime and that they were used for beer and wine and cider. You know, I, you know, I might be inclined to think of elegant stemware, but this was Jefferson's choice and commented on by some of his visitors. Okay, a brief segue to the one, and I, I think only, truly bizarre and very, very definitely not typical French object that we can associate with Jefferson. It's not a urinal. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been in, in lectures given by silver weenies like me who forget to mention that and the audience is left thinking, oh my god. <laughs> but it's not a urinal. Um, this is actually on the, on the lower left is a wooden model for an ASKOS. That's A-S-K-O-S which is an ancient Roman bronze vessel, a wine vessel, essentially a wine ewer. Um, it was made, the French model was made by a craftsman named Souche in Nîmes um, in 1789. And on the right is the silver ascos that Jefferson commissioned when he returned to America um, from the, silver, uh, the Philadelphia silversmiths Anthony Simmons and Samuel Alexander. They were in partnership for only a very brief period of time and they made this piece for Jefferson in 1801. Now, as I say, the wooden model is based on an ancient Roman bronze example. It was excavated in the ruins at Nîmes and so it was something that was considered just this wonderful treasure from the deep, um, recovered during that period when Jefferson was in France and um, he wanted actually to have a model so that he could order an example of this form for Clarisseau. But he ran into somebody thought the first model was lost, he never received it, he had to recommission another one, and in the meantime he just gave up and went and got that coffee urn um, through Odeo that has disappeared. Now, the Jefferson family, uh, in, in their many memoirs about uh, the, the man himself, um, record that they used the silver ascos as a hot chocolate pot and that they called it the silver duck, which I think is just <laughs> wonderful. And this is by far the most exotic, the most idiosyncratic piece of silver with French roots that ultimately go back to ancient Rome. Right. But they are all pieces 
that um, were brought back by someone who had lived in, in, in France. And in fact, so much of the silver, that uh, French silver, that we find with histories in America after the revolution had concluded, after the American Revolution had concluded, was brought by people who had that intimate, direct experience of being in France themselves. The 1820s and 18, uh, 18 teens and 1820s in America were a period of economic stagnation. Um, that did really very little to foster the importation of foreign-made silver into our new nation. And I think it's important to stress that um, we imported so much fine tableware and so much porcelain in particular because we were not making it here in America in a sustained and successful manner until the mid-19th century. Um, Donna mentioned the um, Tucker factory in Philadelphia, and while they, they were successful for a, a, a brief period, really their production was very short-lived and very limited. Um, the need for appropriate materials and the need for skilled craftsmen and the willingness to pay for the startup of this kind of luxury industry were almost always um, overridden by the availability of Chinese French or English uh, ceramics of very, very diverse types. And so we do, we do import ceramics out of necessity and I think desire because there's not an American successful ceramics industry for this kind of refined tableware. But we are making silver from the period of first settlement. And while it may not be as stylish and as refined as its European counterparts, certainly not as its French counterparts, we have the ability to meet that need ourselves. And so during the 18-teens and 1820s, there's really not a large-scale importation of either British or French goods um, it, that are silver into the new nation. And interestingly enough, tariffs had already been legislated by the 18-teens and 20s for many imported goods, including silver. So there was a price prohibition as well. Now, the financial picture in America began to brighten in the um, early 1830s, but that was cut short by the Panic of 1837, which engendered a rash of bank and business failures, as well as very high rates of unemployment that sadly remind me all too much of our modern-day situation. In 1742, Congress increased this ad valorem tax or tariff on imported silver, as well as on textiles, iron, glass, and even porcelain by that point. Um, and it raised the tax rate on these goods from 20% to 30%. That's a whopping big penalty for bringing in imported goods. The higher tariff was meant to both protect American manufacturers and to encourage the development of our nascent industries. It helped somewhat with our um, ceramics manufacturing, certainly, and as the economy rebounded in the 1840s, it definitely had the desired effect, effect with regards to silver production, because by the 1840s, America was beginning to utilize a much more sophisticated system of mechanization with water and steam-powered factories that could produce very effectively and um, in a manner that was much more competitive. 
And I, I would encourage you, I, I cannot claim uh, credit for any of what I've just told you, I would encourage you to examine chapter one especially of Charles Venable's Silver in America, 1840 to 1940, A Century of Splendor for further discussion on this economic aspect. But what I do want to show you just briefly is, you know, it, it doesn't mean, there's never an absolute. Some foreign-made silver continued to be imported despite these tariffs, um, but it is, it is rather rare and, and few and far between. Here we see two cruets and stand with unfortunately unidentified marks of the maker and the town, but they were made in France in 1843, and they are now owned by the collection of the Catholic Diocese of Charleston in South Carolina. And they're engraved on them, Cathedral of St. Finbar, presented by the ladies of the congregation, 1st of November in the year 1843. There's also an A for aqua or water, and a V for vino or wine, the, the Latin terms that were still being used in the Latin mass in Catholic churches on the two cruets. I often suspect the ladies might have actually submitted this um, commission in 1842 before that tariff had been increased. And I wonder how they felt when they finally got it in November of, 80, of uh, 1843 for 10% more than they might have planned. But American silversmiths were, as I say, really beginning to flourish, to come into their own in terms of embracing this um, uh, this bold and sculptural, dare I say, even more masculine French interpretation of classicism that was so dominant in the early 19th century. Um, here we have on the upper uh, left a pair of sauce boats made by Anthony Roche while he was in Philadelphia, 1815 to 1819. They're now at Yale. And then down below, this wonderful little inkstand by Harvey Lewis of Philadelphia um, with its little Native American uh, um, sort of heads morphing into these feet um, with their decorative little headdresses. That was made by Harvey Lewis of Philadelphia in 1815 to 1825, again owned by Yale. And it's, um, I'm sorry, the, the Rausch sauce are owned by the Met, shame on me. Um, ink stand by Harvey Lewis is owned by Yale. And then there is a candle stand, which is convertible to an ink stand, made by Obadiah Rich of Boston in uh, about 1830 and still uh, at Yale. And all of them exhibit this new sculptural style that really, I think, epitomizes the French influence in American silver. And I would hasten to add, correct me if I'm wrong, Daniel, um, but uh, the uh, Rausch, who made the um, sauce boats, uh, eventually moves to New Orleans, and he lives just a short distance from where we are now meeting. And I am uh, grateful to, to Daniel Brooks for reminding me of this fact. Um, there is uh, a, a discernible French influence, I believe, also in this large presentation viewer made by Baldwin Gardner in 1833. He worked in um, New York, and uh, this is a piece that's now at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. This tall, very sculptural ewer form with a relatively um, slender base morphing into a broader foot is uh, somewhat characteristic of, of French silver in this period, um, as are the, uh, the rich repoussé or chaste ornament that um, encircles the, the neck of the piece with this classical vocabulary of scrolls and anthemia. Um, 
So what's interesting to me about this and why I think it might relate to our topic today is that it is very richly engraved with an inscription that reads, as a testimonial of their estimation of his personal character and seamanlike abilities, the passenger of the ship Natchez on her voyage from New Orleans to New York in June 1833, present this picture to Captain Hartwell Reed, New York, July 4th, 1833. Um, steam travel was, it was, this was a package ship actually, um, and there were definitely a, a great deal of interest being expressed at that point in time in making travel between the mid-Atlantic colonies in New York and the southern um, states much um, more efficient and reliable and quicker. And so this reflects that sort of linking of the United States of beginning to try to establish better routes of commerce. But it is made by a New York silversmith, and so its French style in that respect um, reflects a, a broader and, shall we say, slightly more northern um, aesthetic. By contrast, I offer you this um, uh, picture made by James Conning of Mobile, Alabama, a silversmith about whom we sadly know too little. It dates to 1840, and I took this auction from nor uh, this um, image from Northeast Auctions website. This piece was sold in March of this past year, and I, I if you if you studied your forum packets carefully. Um, you will perhaps have noticed that the twin um, is in the Neal Auction Company brochure that's in your registration packet. There is this, there's a piece that has to be the identical twin to this. But my question to you now is, so is there a French influence that is directly and immediately discernible in this piece? Um, and I say that in part because in addition to making silver, we also know that conning uh, retailed silver made by, for instance, Wooden Hughes of New York, a name I'd like you to remember. It gets harder and harder as you move into the 19th century to untangle this complex web of design and determine what is French and what is more of an international style. So for our last section here, I would like to turn to the local um, uh, New Orleans firm of Hyde and Goodrich. And here we see one of their advertisements from the New Orleans Merchant Diary and Guide um, in 1857. This is owned by the Historic New Orleans Collection. And before I say any more, I must say um, that the, this pivotal firm of Hyde and Goodrich um, is, is, is known to us today, um, and we are all indebted, I certainly am very deeply indebted, to Carrie T. Mackey, H. Parrott Baco, and Charles L. Mackey for their outstanding scholarship on this company in particular and on New Orleans silver in general. If you do not own a copy of Crescent City Silver published by the historic New Orleans collection, I urge you to run, not walk to the book sale table and buy it. It is the Bible published on silver. And you know, I, I um, had the pleasure of talking with Carrie for a while last evening and uh, she has more information. It's time, it is time to revisit this subject and have another exhibition and another catalog. Um, it's, the iron is hot, strike quickly, I urge you all. Now, Hyde Goodrich was founded in 1816 and carried on business until the 1860s 
while I think there is <clears throat> a slight bit of exaggeration in their claim in this to be the only manufacturers of gold and silverware in the Southwest, the firm was undeniably a titan in this region. And here we have another image from the historic New Orleans collections. Um, I have to say, and I say this as a, as a New England, a misborn person, I, I somehow managed to come into this world in New England, but I found my way to Virginia, where I feel I really am at home. Um, uh, so I say this as a sort of reformed Yankee. Um, I think it's somewhat unfortunate that uh, Hyde and Goodrich has been called the Tiffany of the South, because had... Um, the uh, events of that period of discord in our own history gone differently, we would definitely be referring to Tiffany's as the Hyde and Goodrich of the North. Um, this, um, this, uh, this image certainly brings home that this imposing building dominated the corner of Canal and Royal Streets. It is indicative of their great success. And I would call your attention to this um, golden pelican who uh, adorned the, uh, the, the corner of the building. It was the symbol or the logo of the company. Um, and it, it, without doubt, I must stress, Hyde and Goodrich of New Orleans was the most prolific retailer and maker of silver in the Gulf Coast region, and indeed, I would argue, in the entire southern section of America. Uh, but before we talk further about Hyde and Goodrich, I need to say just a few words about French hallmarking conventions. <laughs> French hallmarks are the most complicated, the most difficult and the most frustrating marks anywhere in the world. I'm showing you here a fork from a private collection made probably by Nicolas Autrevon II in Paris in 1773. It is in a private collection. Now, a couple of things about French flatware. It tends to be larger and heavier than its British and American counterparts. Um, and this is an example of the so-called plain fiddle pattern, which was also made eventually in, in Britain and eventually in America. The earlier example was a fiddle thread that I showed you that Thomas Jefferson owned. Now, the image on the right, um, the image on the left shows the fork, what we think of today as right side up, where the tines curl up and the tip of the handle curls up. Um, we've got a detail of the marks in the center, and we'll talk about that with a better detail in a moment. And then over on the right is an example of the piece upside down. Tines curved down, tip of the handle curved down. And that upside down orientation is how silver was placed on the table in France and still is in fine French restaurants in Europe today. So they set their table with the same orientation of fork, knife, spoon but the fork and the spoon are upside down in comparison to the way we use them. And you will notice that the engraving, there's engraving on the back of the handle, which is J. Marchand, and it is on the back so that when it is set on the table upside down, you would see it, okay? Um, I don't know, unfortunately, who J. Marchand is. Okay, let's zero in on those marks. And one thing you need to know about marks on French and British flatware to the end of the 18th century is that the marks were struck before the pieces were fully finished. And as a result, because the, the stem, uh, flatware is hammered, okay, and the stem tends to be stretched more, so the marks on flatware, spoons and forks, tend to be stretched and distorted, which makes them even harder to identify. 
Okay, marks on hollowware. This is not the case, but marks of tea sets and cups and things like that. But marks on flatware are challenging in the 18th century. All right, so we're going to look at them very closely here. So from top to bottom, what we have um, is for the pre-revolutionary period. This little lady at the very top is the um, large charge mark used in Paris between 18... I'm, um, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to go left to right. All right, this one over here, although it's stretched and distorted, you have to believe me, this is the large char charge mark of Paris used between 1768 and 1774. It is a crowned A, and the crowned A represented Paris. Then we have the large discharge mark up here, which is a woman's head, again used only between 1768 and 1774. She is facing right. And then down below here we have a very distorted maker's mark, which appears to be at least the letters N-O, and I believe is most likely Nicolas Autrebal, the second who became a master in 1735 and died in 1779. And then finally over here we have a crowned K, which is the Paris mark of the Maison Commune for 1773. It is essentially the date letter, okay? Um, all right, that is French pre-revolutionary hallmarking conventions as seen in Paris. And I just, before we move on, I just need to say to you that it's important to know that even today, America has no legally mandated hallmarking system. There is no board of oversight or of regulation. There was a brief attempt to create this in Baltimore in the 1820s, but it was very short-lived and only in Baltimore. Now, I do think if you were to go home and take a piece of tinfoil and stamp it with the word sterling, you just might get in trouble if you tried to sell it. But there is no guild hall or governing body where manufacturers in the 17th, the 18th, the 19th, the 20th, or the 21st century had to bring their wares to have them tested to guarantee that they were of the appropriate metal quality. Okay. So, moving rapidly along, here is a tablespoon that bears the marks of Hyde and Goodrich of New Orleans, Wooden Hughes of New York, and some French marks as well. Typical characteristics of early to mid-19th century French flatware. It, it speaks French when you look at it in this manner. Um, and here you see that bevel again. Notice that there is a monogram engraved, L-E in script, but it's engraved on the back of the handle, which would mean if you set it in, according to the French convention, it would be visible. Okay. So, let's take a look at the marks on this piece. They're on the back, and starting from the top, these are all of the marks on it, running in sequence from the shoulders towards the tip. We're going to start here and here. This is a very faint lozenge shape that is on the front of the stem opposite this mark. This is what is called a counter strike. Um, it is a, uh, a basically a mark that is distinctive to French silver. Um, they use a two-part marking system by this point where it's sort of like sticking it between a pair of tongs and hitting the tongs. So you get a really sharp mark on one side and a less distinct mark on the other. This 
is um, the head of Minerva, facing right. Um, she has uh, a, um, a, a, a war helmet with that sort of brush design on it. Um, but interestingly enough, she should either have the number one or the number two also within that little clipped corner. The clipped corner suggests that it is actually the first or higher standard, which would be 925, uh, 950 parts silver to 50 parts copper, higher than the English sterling standard. But the letters, the numbers are missing, and that's a bit of concern. Okay, down below, the next in sequence is Hyde and Goodrich, a very common and typical representation of the several marks that we use by the firm. And then finally over here, the last set of marks are an eagle displayed in an oval, so a representation of an American eagle, the initials W and H in a lozenge or diamond, and a capital F in an oval. Now, many New York firms, such as Albert Coles, for instance, used these tripartite marks. So tripartite marks kind of give you a clue. It's probably a New York maker. And many of them used the American Eagle. But this, I believe, is the mark of Wood and Hughes. It is not a mark that's well known or frequently published for them, but uh, Wood and Hughes were major makers who retailed through other silversmiths all over the country, and we know they made things for Hyde Goodrich. Okay. Um, but it's that F in the oval down below that really troubled me because I can't find that anywhere. I can't find that in any New York silversmiths. I've not seen it with Wooden Hughes before. And I couldn't figure out what it meant until I realized that Britain, England, mandates a mark to be struck on silver of foreign manufacture that's going to be sold in England in 1867. And that mark is an F in an oval. F for foreign, so F in an oval is the mark that is used in England, required by law if it's foreign made. So my initial reaction is, is this spoon from New Orleans? Is this spoon from France? Is this spoon from New York? Does it have any British pedigree? And after much, much uh, contemplation and struggling, I have personally come to the conclusion that, in fact, it was made by Wooden Hughes of New York, specifically for retail by Hyden Goodrich, with fake French hallmarks to make it more credible, especially because this has to date, because of that ethnonoble, it would have to date post-Civil War, no earlier than 1867. And that just might take the sting off a northern manufacturer making goods for a southern firm in a very difficult period. It is somewhat speculative, but there you are. Now, I need to wrap this up very quickly, so I'm going to just whiz you through a couple of things. What is French about the silver made in the South or retailed in the South in the mid-19th and later 19th century? Here on the left, we have a teapot and stand made by Tiffany Young and Ellis in New York about, 17, about 1855. Um, we know they sold in New York. We also know they sold to Hyde and Goodrich and in New Orleans. On the right is a coffee pot in a very similar style, same time period, that is marked only Hyde and Goodrich. So we've got New York and we've got New Orleans. 
And here we have a tea and coffee service on the left made by Vincent LaForman Brother, a very little known firm about whom I did my master's thesis. They worked in Boston, same time. And on the upper right is one of the presentation drawings for a three-piece tea service in a very similar vein made by the LaForman shop in Boston in the 1850s. So we have Boston, New York, and New Orleans, all very much in the same style. Well, to the rescue comes our dear friend, the world of ceramics. This is part of a tea and coffee service, which is Haviland model 389-39. These pieces were made in Limoges in about 1850-1855. They're in a private collection. It's perfect. Clearly, they're all copying French porcelain. But remember, as Donna Corbin pointed out, Haviland is a French factory founded by Americans. And just in case you're wondering, the author of a new book on Haviland has assured me and shown me the images. This particular body shape is based on an earlier Staffordshire, England model. Oh, dear God. It, 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 is, it is, I think it's safe to say, by the mid-19th century, there is an international flow of ideas and designs, and America truly becomes a player in that exchange through firms like Haviland and Hyden Goodrich and through, firms, through events like the New York Crystal Palace of 1853. So I will leave you now to enjoy your lunch with this last image. <laughs> Imitation is the highest form of flattery. And I do believe it is true. Over time, long-term couples, and yes, even their beloved pets, begin to look more like each other. Thank you very much.